Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, it is a genuine delight to have someone on as my guest who has been massively influential, not only to me, but to millions of other people in business. His name is Dr. Martin Lindstrom. Martin is the author of multiple books, and today I want to uh, talk to him about his fabulous book, Small Data, because I'm fascinated by the amount of money that's being squandered on big data, people not listening to their customers. So, Martin, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for joining me in this crazy world right now where you have even two Muppets behind you. I mean, who would have expected a year ago I would be talking to a Muppet? Uh, well, you've got three Muppets in this particular case. So, Martin, tell me this. You've got a long and illustrious background. You've come from uh, a small town in uh, Denmark, and you've become a global figure. Tell us a little bit about your background. My background began when I was uh, playing with Lego. I was a huge fan of Lego. I built up my own Legoland in the backyard of my mom and dad's garden, <laughs> and no one showed up. So uh, I put an ad in the paper, and guess what? The day after, I had 131 visitors. Only problem were that visitor number 130 and visitor number 131 were the lawyers from Lego suing me. I'm not kidding. So what happened was uh, the founder heard about it or the owner heard about it, so he invited me to work for Lego at the age of 12. And, well, guess what happened since then? I was stuck with this world of creativity and branding. And I had my own advertising agency. I founded it when I was 13, sold it when I was 18, and then I traveled the world. And later on, here I am, um, writing books and, and helping companies to, to transform. Well, you must have spent an awful lot of time in other people's houses, making a living being a professional observer of the human condition. That must have been a fascinating experience. What have you learned most about yourself? I've learned to put myself in the shoes of another person and truly respect that person's point of view. I mean, what I quite often do when I'm out traveling is that I try to experience what other people are experiencing. Um, so recently, a couple of years ago, I dressed up as a woman in Saudi Arabia, dressed up with a burqa dressed up with all that stuff and literally were living in the in the kingdom for a couple of days. So why did I do that? I did it because I wanted to experience how it feels to be a woman and not be able to drive. And later on, what the ramifications of driving were, how men were interacting with women, because there's a lot of fear going on. I tried the other day to be blind for four days and follow blind people to see the world from their point of view. Or I was a cabin crew on board on Swiss International Airlines serving passengers. Or I was a captain on board of a merchant ship sailing across um, the world. Or I was kidnapped in Venezuela. These things are things, in some cases not something I'm doing on purpose like being kidnapped, but these things are things that I'm doing in order to feel a sense of empathy from the other person's point of view. Because when, when that happens, you also get a sense for what's going on, not from your little inside-out point of view, but from the outside-in point of view. I did have a former dominatrix client uh, who offered kidnappings as a uh, fantasy fulfillment. Um, 
She was really interesting. And she, the irony was she used to struggle selling using the concept of pain. I'm quite happy kicking the crap out of people. Just couldn't talk to people about their pain. You've operated in multiple countries, multiple cultures, seen things through the eyes of uh, a woman, a kidnap victim, uh, and so forth. Presumably, there's a little kid inside of you that really relishes this adventure. Tell me about that twin. Well, listen, the, uh, the less known story about me is that when I was eight years of age, uh, I was sitting at the kitchen table with my mom and my dad. I'm I was only one kid in the family. And my dad was really, really depressed about work. He had a lot of stress going on and he was just not happy. So I said to him, why don't we travel the world? And my mom and dad were very adventurous. My mom had her own company. My dad was, was a, a senior person in, in a fishing company of all stuff. And uh, they said, yeah, why not? So I wrote a contract with my mom and dad on an actual <laughs> contract. I'm not kidding. I mean, I'm a strange kid. I, I admit it, right? So I literally wrote a, a contract saying, um, you know, in the name of my dad, that he would take one year off and we would travel the world. And we literally did that when I was eight years of age. I, I jumped, on, jumped on a little sailing boat and then we sailed around the world for a year. And... Um, there was just one promise. Uh, that was the promise from my mom and dad. Their promise back was, first of all, my dad, he would become my teacher of life. And the second thing is I had to pay for this. So they demanded that I had to pay for all my food and whatever I would do on this trip. So I reached out to Lego already back then, and I had them donate a lot of bricks, Lego bricks, and I built small jewelry, small men, and I put sort of a necklace around and I built um, a couple for each of the countries we would sail to with a country flag on. And then whenever we would arrive somewhere in the world, first sailing through the canals in Europe to Paris and then out to the Mediterranean, out around the, the world. But when I would sail into Paris, I would, for example, in the Latin Quarter where they're selling these books, I would literally look at them, sit on the sideline and look at these booksellers. And as soon as they would go to lunch, they would close down there the bookstores, I would sneak up, put up my chair and have my stall there. And the tourists have no idea about that they would go to lunch. So they thought I was one of the official French people and I would sell all my Lego men. And that would really you know, give me funding for the next 10 days of, of food. That is really where my story began, the, the love for traveling and the love for adventure, because I fundamentally believe we only have one one life. And the journey is the one counting. It's not the destination. I think a lot of people are so obsessed with the destination. My bucket list once I'm retiring. I believe, um, well, I tend to say that I never got to work. And the day I, I stopped work, the day I, I stopped work, I've been working, I'll, I'll quit working because I do feel that you have to, you have to live every moment in your life. So th that's really my philosophy, I guess. Oh, well, it's a philosophy we share. You are dead for a very, very, very long time. And if the destination is death, then frankly, I'd much prefer uh, to enjoy the journey. But building on the, the question you're asking me, if I'm a kid inside, I'm, my story with Lego is one side. But one thing I've realized uh, in my life is that we all have different ages, not just our physical age. I'm 50 now. But I also have what I call my twin age. So 
uh, I'm probably 16 of age on my twin age. And one thing I realized is that if you maintain your twin age, you actually stay a kid inside. And that's a strength. It's a strength because you have two aspects, which really can help you a lot. One is that you challenge and question the world. And the second thing is that you are very creative because you're not set in a conform way of seeing the world. I think a lot of people desperately want to grow up and have that sort of adult behavior. If I ask most people around the world, they actually have three ages. They have the twin age, they have the physical age, and then the worst thing is they also have the corporate age. And the corporate age, it probably that's what you've tried, that you actually are older than your physical age, right? So I think, <laughs> well, it's, it's horrible, right? So what I'm saying to people is maintain your twin age because as long as you maintain that, you actually, you actually are on the right track. In fairness, I'm going to defend myself here. I never grew up. My wife constantly harps on that I'm nothing more than a big child. So, so um, how old are you? How old are you? I, I reckon I'm somewhere between 12 and 15. The, well, the I'm going to analyze you for a second. Sorry for interrupting. Yeah, please. One, one of my theories are that it's when you had a profound change as a child which froze the time you were in. So the reason why I'm so young at this is because that was where I had my Legoland experience. And I probably uh, am around that period where that happened. Would you say that's right? Did you have, when you were very young, something dramatic happening which really helped you to freeze time? I think I had a year off school and was being homeschooled around 12. And around 15, I stopped being afraid of going to school. I'm not entirely sure, but I just think that at that point, I started to really question everything. And I found a voice in that time. I've always been, well, I say always, the first 36 years or so of my life, I was pretty introverted. And then I had a near-death experience then. And that was the point I lost any tolerance for trivia. And I've had to spend a long time working back uh, to being able to do small talk. Um, wow. So there have been moments in my life where that I, I've had to draw on that childish uh, reserve. So I remember at the near-death experience, my heart stopped and the A&E people were all around me or the intensive care people were all around me trying to revive me. And what was going through my head was, oh, this hurts. I hope they can get me through this. But time just slowed. I observed everything that was going on. And it was it was really interesting just observing. And during that period of 12 to 15, I was very much an observer. Um, I was seeing the way people behaved and uh, acted. I was looking at patterns of behavior. Maybe there's something there, but it certainly helped me get through that particularly scary moment in my life. In fact, it, it wasn't scary. That was the interesting thing. It should have been, but it wasn't. I was remarkably calm. What word would you put on that experience? Enlightening, more than anything else. I, I, I got to observe myself as a third party, looking in at the experience of uh, all these people running around, and uh, I, I had an emotional detachment. But it was really enlightening just watching everything going on around and feeling like an observer at my own crisis. Isn't it, isn't it both sad and fascinating 
that it took you, it takes us and their life-death experience to wake up. Why does it have to be that dramatic? I mean, why do we go into a routine so quickly as we do in our lives, plugging on? This is a great question and one I pondered a lot. And I believe it's around attachment. The Buddha said it better than me. Attachment is the root to all misery. And if you look at how most of us operate around the drama triangle, we play the victim, the persecutor, the rescuer, and ego thrives on drama. And we're so stuck in the past or worrying about the future that we're not fully present. And the net result of that is that we let life pass us by. And I think a watershed moment, it doesn't have to be life or death, but that certainly does uh, wake you up to it. And the learning to stay unattached to the outcome, being able to step back and see what's really going on and bringing your humanity to the process, I think is really, really important as well. So uh, the alternative to the drama triangle is the winner's triangle. So you're vulnerable, you're nurturing, you're assertive. And that, that is a place of strength. Vulnerability, and I think um, the, the clue there is in the word vulnerable. The Latin root of vulnerable is vulnerabilis, and it means to put yourself in harm's way or make yourself woundable and do it anyway. It's an act of courage. And I think it takes an enormous amount of courage to be vulnerable. But very few people are willing to do that, so they create a shell. Yeah, I think you're spot on. And I have to say, no, you, you were touching bases on a lot of things just down my alley, and one of them is being present. I think there's two, two huge threats in our society today. One of them is that we increasingly are losing the sense of empathy. And the second thing is that we're not present. Empathy meaning, again, the ability to put yourself in the shoes of another person and see and feel what that person is feeling. With the net, the social media as prominent in everyone's lives, we increasingly, due to algorithms, are seeing the world from our own point of view and it's reinforced. That's the reason why we see democracy falling apart in front of our eyes. Even some of our studies and something I'm writing about in my new book, The Minister of Common Sense, in the book, I also talk a lot about how empathy has disappeared. A study, a recent study in the U.S. shows among university students that empathy levels have dropped 50%. And one of the reasons why, by the way, is not just that we are tweeting and expressing all our emotions in 100 plus characters. It's also Botox. Can you believe it? that those micro-expressions we have are disappearing. So we're seeing now that mothers and their relationship with their children is falling apart because babies cannot pick up those micro-expressions the mother is giving. So Botox is actually destroying the relationship between the child and the mother from a very young age. So that's, that's one aspect because I think it's a huge threat to human mankind and because what's fascinating about empathy is that the reason why the human species is so superior compared to any other species on planet Earth is because we actually developed, continue to develop our brain. And we got the third layer to the brain, which really was our ability to have a sense of empathy. Whereas, sadly, a polar bear is not adopting to 
um, the global warming scenario and dropping through the ice, human beings can actually adapt in the same generation where polar bears take 15 generations to do it. But what's really scary about this observation is that that factor has made us become who we are, but it's also the one killing us now because the recent studies are showing empathy is disappearing now. That's actually what made us survive. And that's disappearing because of technology and numbers and data and AI and all this stuff. So that's one factor. And, and, the, and the other factor is, is the lack of being present. That the smartphone, and I'm, I'm not sure if you're aware, but I skipped, I skipped my phone three years ago and I don't have a phone anymore. And I did it because I, I got the sense of I was losing my sense of creativity. And I was spending some time with another fellow author, my, Malcolm Gladwell in Zambia. And we had discussions about creativity. And one of the things I realized was that I certainly, I'm not sure if Malcolm agrees with this, but I certainly felt my creativity levels were disappearing because I constantly were somewhere else. I constantly wanted to be stimulated by other stuff happening in the cloud. So I was not recording the moment. And out of that, I really felt that it was almost like I was not getting enough juice out of my life, so I skipped my phone. So I do think that the ability to be present and empathy are two key factors, both of them which we're losing right now. Well, I, I agree with you that uh, the inability to be present is definitely a negative force. And um, that attachment to the outcome attachment to being perceived in a particular way, attachment to being wanted or whatever, it can cause you to behave in such a way that uh, means that you do lack empathy. And you see this very often manifest in a sense of entitlement. And that's one of the ugliest qualities of our species. And I, I think when we look at organizations, brands, they often make the assumption that customers should be buying their stuff. Um, but we see so often they have loyal customers who stopped buying because the brand has stopped listening and they've forgotten that in the modern age, you don't determine your brand, your customers do. And I think one of the big challenges here is that so few corporations really grasp that. And the net result of that is that you see marketing teams that never speak to customers. You see senior executives who never speak to customers. And so they don't get the raw, unvarnished, unfiltered truth from their customer base. And what I find fascinating is how delusional many senior executives and marketers are about why customers buy, because they don't spend anywhere near enough time close to the customer. That's what really fascinated me about your small data book, because you were just right in the thick of it, and you were exercising empathy, and you know you're you're in the the heart of people's homes, observing these tiny expressions and little ticks and uh, patterns of behaviour. I think we've lost that to a large extent because people aren't present. You look at people go to a restaurant, and I think in the book you mention. They turn up, they sit down, and then out comes the phone, and conversation has died. So what, what's the antidote? Well, I think many things. First of all, it's a realization that you are derailing at the moment. 
for me, what happened when I skipped the phone was that I had a bet with a lady called Ariana Huffington and, and we had a chat about the phone and she, she started up a, a company called Thrive and, and I realized that if I did not put an end to all this stuff, I would certainly spiral out of control. So I did this bet and this is the, the best advice I can give to everyone watching and listening, that you should um, do three things. First, you should go on a detox with your phone and you should do it fairly quickly. Now, you should not sort of stop using your phone 100% like I did because I felt like a complete loser, frankly, when I started to do it. I really felt alone for a while. But you should do it from time to time, Sunday afternoon or during the weekend or even better, after 6 p.m. I mean, I spoke to an author the other day, a Norwegian author, and wrote a book about phones impact on children. And I said to him, why, why, why did you write the book? And he said to me, I wrote the book because one day my six-year-old daughter came up to me and she said, Dad, who do you love most, me or your phone? And, and that's, I think, is a very touching statement about where we are. So the first thing you should do is to do this in a small bite-sized steps. The second thing is you should communicate it to the world, just like what I did with Ariane. And, and the third thing you should do is to celebrate it when you change things. These are the, it's like detoxing cigarettes or chocolate or anything really of, of addiction. Because remember, the phone is an addiction. And I actually did an fMRI study on our addiction to the phones some years ago, which later on was ironically used by Al Gore in the speech at Steve Jobs' funeral where he referred back to some of our work. And literally what we've proven was that you actually are in love with your phone, like a real human being. So this is, this is really scary stuff. So go on the detox. Why should you do that is the second question. And I'll tell you there's, reason, there's three reasons why. First, we never really present, so we never see anything. Everything we see, even the biggest and most profound moment, like the first step of our child, we see through a computer, which is kind of sad. Um, the second thing is we don't meet people anymore. Uh, I was sitting in a bar recently in New York City, and this, this bartender, he was talking with me, and I said to him, why did you choose this job? He said, well, because I, I, I wanted to meet new people. And, and then we looked up, and everyone was on the phone. And he said, well, I'm quitting my job now, right? And the third thing is the most scary thing. It is we never get bored anymore. And boredom is the foundation for creativity. It's that little pause in life which makes me stop up, reflect, think, and connect the dots in a new way. And we never have time for that. Whenever we're bored, we take this injection of entertainment and we infuse it into our veins. Whether that is me sitting in a car from destination A to B, or it's just sitting waiting for someone to show up, that's the moment. And, and I think... Uh, we need to get to grip around that, that we, we should be bored, we should reflect, because that makes us see and open our eyes. And that's for sure not happening at the moment. It, it's interesting, because I, I, I see what you're saying. From my perspective, I find that I'm very creative because I'm constantly stimulated and I'm connecting the dots. Now, I, I don't profess to be anything other than a freak, so uh, I, I get that I'm unusual in that respect. But the volume of input 
I find really invigorating. Now, what it does mean is that I'm a terrible husband and an awful father. So I, I am an obsessive and I understand that. And so I apologize from the bottom of my heart for my wife and kids. But the reality is that I, being constantly switched on, I find incredibly stimulating. And I, I've never been more creative. But I think that you do lose a lot of your humanity as a result of being like that. Well, um, I, I will challenge um, so, you for a second there, because knowing you um, only for a couple of minutes here is that there's no doubt about that you thrive through chains. I mean, this pandemic, you told me, has been the best time in your life <laughs> because you're challenging, you're probably being challenged and it forces you to behave differently. Guess what? We're in the same camp. This thing has shaken me up and given me completely new points of view to the world, which I never had before. And I learned so much from it. Um, I think we probably are a rare species which thrives under a certain type of pressure or challenge, um, which makes us kind of, at least me, kind of weird. I don't need to tell you. You are weird when you move into different <laughs> homes, right, and live with them across 80 countries, right? But I, I do think the majority of people probably are addicted to routines because it makes you feel safe. And of course, I don't need to tell you when you remove routines, you also suddenly are on unknown territories where we are afraid of the unknown as the main driver, right? There was a meta study of mankind's greatest fear, and it was 330 studies that they distilled. And it turned out that mankind's greatest fear is the future, because with it comes uncertainty. Yeah. And that plays exactly to your point. I think one of the challenges here is that change is inevitable. And unless we learn to accept it uh, as a fact of life, then we will always come up against it and it will jar. So one of the, the challenges that I think we face as a species is learning how to adapt, but also bringing what's great from our past with us. And I think sometimes we go for wholesale change and we overcorrect because I, I see that happen an awful lot in general society. So you're going from Obama to Trump and now to Biden. And chances are what you're going to see there is the undoing of all that Trump implemented in the same way that Trump uh, undid everything that Obama implemented. And the response to the pandemic has been to a large extent extreme in each case either way so it's either it's a big hoax or it's the the end of humanity i don't think we've really found that middle ground of compromise because we've stopped listening i've spent the last 35 years in sales and i think one of the most valuable lessons that i've learned is i've never listened my way out of a sale i've talked my way out of plenty and I think too many of us want to be heard instead of listening to others. And what, one of the things that I love about your work is that it allows other people a voice. It's inclusive. And I, I'm curious, where did you learn to do that? Because a lot, of, I, I think as children, we're observers and we pay attention. But then somewhere along the line, we lose that skill because we want to be the center of attention. I think that this, the starting point for me 
most definitely was to be on a sailing boat for a year, entertaining yourself with nothing, right? And being exposed for different cultures and through that, respecting and appreciating different points of views. I think I've been primed, quite frankly, from when I was a child. I think the second thing which really have frustrated me a lot is that, as you say, rightly so, companies do not get what consumers want. Remember when I got my first job at Lego at the age of, of 12, Lego did this, I learned later on, to see the world through a kid's eyes because I lost contact with that. And that really, that mindset really stayed with me for a long time. So I continued connecting companies with the real point of view. The, the issue is with companies that they actually do get what the consumer wants when they're founded. I mean, I'll give you an example. And this is also an example about the difference between small and big data. When companies are founded like Snap, Snapchat originally, and it was founded by two kids. And these two kids were sitting in, in the bedroom and one was smoking weed. And the other of his friend took a photo of him and they uploaded it where he was completely off his head. And of course, the day after, everyone was laughing about this, this guy smoking away. And he said to his friend, I wish I could retract that photo. And that became the invention of, <laughs> of Snap. Okay. And so he was the consumer at that moment, finding a need. And remember, what I, small data for me is what I define as seemingly insignificant observations we make in people's lives. The difference between small and big data is big data is all about correlation. Small data is all about causation, the reason why, the hypothesis. And it's a gap between being in balance because we're all out of balance. It's a gap between being in balance and out of balance, which represents an opportunity for a new brand, a new service, or a new, new product. Uh, the issue is that as we're all out of balance, there's so many opportunities. Maybe I feel I'm too overweight, so there's Weight Watchers. Maybe I feel I have a midlife crisis, well, that's Harley Davidson. Maybe I feel uh, that I'm alone, well, that's Match.com. So it's that out of balance which I'm always uh, looking for. And I think the issue with companies are that they are founded with that mindset through the founder and they grow. And at some point, they hit exactly what you're saying, which is they become addicted to, uh, to routines. And if you're addicted to that, what happens is that you start to protect yourself from not losing what you already have. They build up legal functions, compliance, rules and regulations, silos, more and more people, KPIs, all that stuff. And all of that is almost like one big emotional stretch jacket around everyone's mindset, protecting and fine-tuning what they're already doing. But guess what happens in that process? They stop listening, right? And that stop listening process means that they become incredibly vulnerable. Now, take a look at companies like Kellogg's. Kellogg's, I was born and raised on Kellogg's. In fact, I was so dumb when I was a kid, I didn't thought Kellogg's were Danish, right? It took me many years before uh, I realized it was American. But I was born and raised on Kellogg's. And I think we all did not question it. I think today we question it big way if this is a healthy nutrition for a child. Now, Kellogg's included, is included in questioning it. Have they changed? Not a bit. Have Kraft Heinz changed their products? Not a bit. Why? Because they have huge manufacturing plants spitting out millions and millions of products which have been successful for a long time. And there's a lot of people which are responsible for that. I'll give you an example. 
So one of my clients many years ago were McDonald's. And Charlie Bell was with a former, former, former CEO of McDonald's, reached out to me and he said, Martin, I would like you to reinvent the Happy Meal. I said, yeah, I'd love to do that if I can make it healthy. He said, absolutely. He was a good man. So we sat down. We started to work on ideation processes. And my, my goal was really to create a Happy Meal, which was so clever that it could make a six-year-old eat broccoli. Now, if I would tick that box, I thought, then it's a home run, right? <laughs> so we started to work with, with fruit and vegetables as our tool. We had the broccoli was the bushes in the forest. We had the cucumber. That was the murder weapon. We had the tomatoes. That was the blood. Crazy stuff. And this story was amazing. And kids loved it. And the, and the parents, they loved it because suddenly little Peter was eating broccoli. And even the franchisees, you've been a former franchisee, runner. So they loved it when we rolled out the pilots across Europe. So I went to Oprah, which was the headquarter of, of McDonald's back then in the US, and showed this concept. And they said to me, it's interesting. And I thought, yes, that thing is interesting, right? But <laughs> you and I know what that means. If people say interesting <laughs> and pause, after that you're fucked. Right? You're literally fucked. Yeah. That was it, right? Yeah, so, that, that, that is the kiss of death. That is the complete kit of this. So I went back and said, yes, I love it. And we waited for two years for McDonald's to produce this new brilliant Happy Meal. And guess what? It came out after two years. And it was an ordinary Happy Meal, as we all know them, plus an apple sliced into a plastic bag. And mm. that was where I learned that the disconnect was happening between the consumers and the reality. Why, why was that? Because McDonald's, is the largest toy manufacturer in the world. Can you believe it? And they actually had two plants yeah. in China producing all those cardboard houses. And if they had to change all those houses, they would have to change the entire system. So the immune system was defending chains within the organization. And quite frankly, in that period, Morgan Spurlock came up with Super Size Me and the share price tanked. And so I think the issue here is Companies don't want to listen because it will challenge the existing mindset. And that's the unknown we're talking about. And that's just not very comfortable to do that. Well, taking it full circle to the other extreme, where I see great companies, they build their business from the user up. And they think as the customer, Mark Schaefer in Marketing Rebellion talks about this. He was a fascinating guest. And he said, think as the customer, not about the customer. And I think your work is all about thinking as the customer. And I, I look at great companies and the companies that I'm working with at the moment, we're starting with the user in mind. One of them is a cybersecurity company. No one cares about cybersecurity. What they care about is the user experience. If the security gets in the way, of them being able to do their work and creates friction, then they will find a workaround. So the challenge here is how do you achieve the company's objectives whilst also making sure that the customer is at the heart of everything that you do? And the only way to do that, I believe, is by speaking to customers, listening to what they say uh, in an unvarnished, unfiltered way, without bias. And that takes real skill to detach yourself uh, and take yourself out of the way 
I mean, one of the rules that I taught for the last 17 years is always get out of the way of the customer and their decision to buy. The minute you make yourself the issue, you create a wall and you create an obstacle to the customer buying from you. But it's also critically important that we pay attention. And um, my friend Ron Voperice came up with this wonderful concept that attention is a currency. Certainly in English, you pay attention. And the problem is that I think attention has been diverted from where it needs to be to uh, becoming selfish. It's to our KPIs. It's to hitting our quota. And the net result of that is you've got this massive disconnect and this misalignment between marketing, uh, lead generation, sales, customer success, operations, and the customer somewhere you know, in the distant background. And the net result of that is that you end up producing products that are elegant solutions to problems that don't exist, which is you know, the curse of many an entrepreneur, because they produce the product in isolation from the customer. And they don't pay attention to how people use their product, uh, how they interact with it. And as a result of that, they launch. So a, a great example of this is a fabulous lady that I mentioned to you before we started talking, Amy Brown. And listening to billions of conversations a year and intentionally removing bias from their interpretation, then finding themselves in the situation where they're being forced to look into the ugly mirror because their customers are telling them exactly how they feel, uh, exactly how working with that company is impacting them. Uh, Another fabulous lady that I interviewed, Karen Mangia from Salesforce, one lady that she was coaching had done the customer research and they'd identified exactly what it is the customers wanted and didn't want. And uh, the board listened to what she had to say. And then the chief executive said, I'm, taking, I'm making a captain's call. Uh, we're going to launch this product, despite the fact no one wants it. And it was a complete disaster. So what, what still surprises me is this corporate deafness that seems to go on, where their th- leaders are fixated on an idea which they've fallen in love with and they've become attached to. And as a result, They're ignoring the people who matter the most, their customers. Why does this persist? Well, let me explain this. And for those of you watching right now, it probably would be easier to look at the screen because let me just do a little drawing here on the screen at the moment. So in the good old days, we had companies which had two dimensions to, to follow. One was happy customers and one was earning money. And that was really straightforward. That was really the delivery of, of the outcome. Then here's what's happened. Wall Street came around. And Wall Street basically was saying, hey, we want you to inform us about how the company is progressing ahead of time. You need to give us quarterly announcement and estimations. So what happened was that suddenly this arrow changed and people actually in companies had to break down the internal organization into different Divisions and each division now had to, you know, send information to Wall Street about what was going on, and that worked very well because the silver lining was still the consumer. But then something extraordinary happened. After a while, these small 
KPIs as they really were in those departments started to become almost self-standing ecosystems, walking in their own little way because they were more busy pleasing themselves than pleasing the other divisions or the company for that sake, because as long as you meet the KPI, you're on the right track. And those small ecosystems, yeah, they were ticking all the right boxes, but they had nothing to do with the customer uh, because they couldn't care less. And this is the biggest enemy in customer experience, that the silos are not working together. It, it may be that I, you know, I, I have a huge, you know, I have huge problems with user experience uh, when I'm on the website. Well, that's the IT department which have to fix that. But what if, for example, they're not integrated probably not with customer service and whatever? I'll give you an example of this. Uh, so MERS, which is the largest shipping company in the world, I you know I was in China to, to look at their customer experience issues. And uh, I was listening into the call centers and we had, there's about 3,000 people sitting in the call center. And as I spoke to these guys, I realized they had an enormous amount of complaints coming in and for some reason, they were sold very quickly. So I started to listen to these calls and realized that almost every time there's a complaint coming in, the person behind the screen will categorize that as force majeure. Now, you and I know what force majeure is. It's an earthquake or corona, right? But everything was force majeure at most. So I started to look at the screens and realized that whenever they were complaining, there was one little box the person in the call center could click, which is force majeure, and they didn't have to fill out more forms. But if if they had to fill out more <laughs> forms, then it would take another 15 pages. And guess what? The service customer service department was measured on time and not on happy customers, right? So the KPIs were coming this way to create a great customer experience. And I think that's the issue we have we decide to see the world from an inside-out point of view rather than outside in. We need to reset things. And that hurts. Why does it hurt? Because it's going to attack my bones. Because it's going to make me uncomfortable for half a year as I redefine my role and move on. All that stuff. So people clinge on to what they have in fear of, as you say, the unknown. Well, you, you've touched on a, a couple of really important factors that raise the hackles on the back of my neck. Um, the, I, I see the unintended consequences, the negative unintended consequences of how people are measured and compensated. And this is an area that organizations really need to take a look at. And the, the great unintended consequence of the force majeure box is that the customer actually got looked after and uh, they resolved the complaint because it meant less hassle in terms of filling out administrative paperwork or electronic work. And the other thing that um, you, you've touched on is the investor culture. I have a real bee in my bonnet about uh, venture capital and private equity, effectively creating businesses with the intention of making a fast return instead of building great businesses. And so they destroy the culture. They create an environment that drives awful behavior and leaves corpses littering the battlefield of burnt out salespeople, failed executive careers, and unhappy customers in the hope that one out of 40 of their investments might turn into a whale or a, a unicorn. And, you know, the whole concept of quarterly reporting puts us at a massive disadvantage 
When we think about who our rivals are in the Far East, Japanese and Chinese companies operate on 100-year plans. We operate on quarterly reporting. And one of my favorite stories of this is at the end of the Korean War, the American delegation rented three floors of the Hilton for three months. The Chinese delegation rented a house for three years. So it was, just, it was a foregone conclusion who was going to win that negotiation, simply because of where they started in terms of the, the mindset. And you know, I, I think of it like a game of chess. The opening six or seven moves determine the outcome of the game. And I think so many organizations are fixated on the wrong end of the problem. They're looking at symptoms, not cause. They are looking at how it serves them, not the customer. And when founders come to me and they ask me the question, can you help me raise funding? I always look in horror at them. The question they should be asking is, how do we create a fundamentally strong business that builds lifetime customer relationships and has highly engaged employees? And if you start with that objective in mind, then everybody wins. But the problem is that uh, we seem to have moved into this win-lose culture. And it's about me winning, you losing. And I don't think that's healthy. And our attention is exactly in the wrong place. So again, if you were speaking to a founder who is looking to start a business for the first time, what advice would you give them in terms of paying attention? I think the most important thing is to truly experience the world through the eyes of the customer. Let me give you an example. So one of our clients is, is one of the larger pharma companies, and these guys are the leaders in respiratory disease products, like inhalers. And I asked these guys about a year ago, um, so how many times have you spent time with the, uh, the patients? And the answer was, never. I said, never this year? No, 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 never in the history really? of the company, 100 years. Okay, So I said, why? They said, well, because of compliance, we're not allowed to. I said, shit. So I spoke to compliance. They were very nice people. I persuaded them to take the employees from this company out in the field and literally spend time with the patients. Now, we go into a home, actually in the UK. There's this wonderful young girl, and I asked her about how it is to have asthma. And she says to me, listen, it's a very strange feeling because you feel like an outsider. You feel like you have a disease put on your forehead, which is displayed to everyone, and you kind of want to hide it. And people don't understand how it feels like. And I say to her, so what do you do in order to overcome that? And she says, I give people a straw, and I ask people to breathe through the straw for a minute while holding themselves on, on the nose. And she said, then they get it. So I took that idea. And I shared it with the board, and I had the whole senior management breathing through a straw for a minute. And after <laughs> 30 seconds, they spit out this straw, and I said, why? They said, I can't, I can't do this. I said, this is how an asthma patient feels every minute of his or her life. And that was a eureka moment for the company who suddenly realized they had to see the world from the patient's point of view, feeling this lack of same empathy in a different way. Um, and this is the first thing you should do as an entrepreneur. You should ask yourself if this is an idea you came up with because you had a problem. That's problem number one. So that's the causation. That's the small data. 
And then you should say, are there other people who have a similar problem? And share that story you have experienced with other people. And if everyone says to you, my God, that's exactly how I'm feeling as well, there's a really good chance that you have a group in the population which is out of balance. And remember, your product, service, or brand is filling that. That's the first thing you should do. The second thing you should do is to write those thoughts you have down straight away. Because here's the issue. As the investors are coming in, as you are expanding your company, you get company partners. As there's more and more employees coming in, you will slowly lose sight of what you stand for and why you created this idea in the beginning. So if you write it down up front, that becomes your mantra of what we can call a purpose. And that purpose will have to drive you throughout the journey. And yes, it's fine for you to fine-tune it, but you constantly have to go back and ask yourself, is what I'm doing right now in line with that mindset or am I slowly derailing? Because a lot of entrepreneurs lose self-confidence through the process. No one want to talk to them. No one want to hear them. No one have time for them. And they're fighting an uphill battle. But in reality, what they're doing is right. It's just you serving it to the world in the right way. And the timing should be perfect, right? So that's my advice. The second advice for an entrepreneur is, of course, to build the brand. You know, I'm a branding guy by, by nature and, and have worked with, I guess, most of the bigger brands in the world. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs forget about the power of a brand. Remember, a brand is an emotional connection you create with a product or a service. And you cannot explain why you feel that way, but you are willing to pay for it and even more than you normally would. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs think about the core product as the service, but they don't think about the emotional side to it. And the emotional side is your safety net. And that's the one which means that no one can cover you. You know, yes, the patent can help you for a while if you're lucky for 10 years, but the emotion you create through the brand can last for a lifetime. That's your safety net. So you have to build the brand from day number one. And here's a very good advice to you to do that. Find out what is the one word you want to stand for. So if I go back to, to our little sort of conversation, every company, every bigger phenomenon in the world is the owner of one word. If I, for example, go into the car industry, and I say the word safety, right? I'm writing it on the screen now. Safety. What it's car brand? Volvo. So there we go, Volvo. Now, what's interesting is Volvo did not come up with this just by coincidence. In 1959, they were the first car company in the world to employ a person from the Swedish Air Force. And he took the three-point seat belt and applied that to the car. They're the first to invent the airbags in the side of the car. They're the first to have the seatbelt alarm. I still hate them for that. But they really <laughs> focused on one word, which was safety. And ever since they've done it, what's really fascinating is that Volvo's marketing budget is one-tenth of what it actually is for any other car company of the same size. Yet they still own that word. Disney owns magic. Google owns search. What is your one word you want to own? And quality and service is taken, just so you know, right? So you have to find unique words which truly makes you stand out in a world which is really crap at the moment. And that is a challenge that's difficult, but it also forces you to find a true point of differentiation. And once you have that, to optimize every touch point around it so that you become well-known. Because here's the issue, if you stand for too much, 
you will drown. But if you're super focused, you actually will have a point of differentiation which will resonate with people over time because they'll start to realize this is what you stand for. Well, you've touched on some really important points here. What you say no to is more important than what you say yes to. And it's the fundamental law of sacrifice. You need to be ready to let go of a whole load of stuff that's ancillary to that core. And something else that's really important is that the brand really is the promise that your customers expect you to keep. And the problem is that so many uh, brands have betrayed that confidence um, because they've uh, pivoted, they've got greedy. Um, and what, what I'm seeing is the companies that are growing super fast without the wheels coming off are the ones that are narrowing their focus. They're not broadening it. They're really getting tight. And uh, I listened to uh, my friend Jay McBain at a conference a couple of years ago, and he said it's no longer good enough to be the managed service provider in health. You need to be the managed service provider to ambulatory uh, clinics, uh, so walk-in clinics of fewer than 50 doctors in southeast Chicago. Um, and if you, tr if you aim at being that narrow, uh, then you will grow very quickly because you will build your brand and your reputation yeah. and your customer base from yeah. that pos uh, position of strength. Then you can pivot five degrees out of the way once you've dominated that spot. But I think so few organizations are willing to take that risk. And risking, again, is something that people don't understand. Sacrificing is going from higher to lower value, and there is no upside. Risking is going from lower to higher value with the possibility that you might lose some or all of what you've got. And it takes brave leadership to risk, but people do not risk everything. They, they don't maximize their risk. What they do is they play it safe. And in doing that, they end up sacrificing. And that's a, a recipe for a slow, painful death uh, in business. And you're, so you're absolutely spot on. And, and let me just let me just add to what you're saying. Uh, let me put myself into to the situation here for a second. When I began working with branding, which I did at a very young age, and you know my story, I could not go out and claim I was the number one branding guy in the world. There was those zero credibility. And here's what I did. If, if I wanted to become the number one branding guy in the world, I had to go on the periphery of it. So I first wrote a book, which were called Brand Building on the Internet. It was in 1994. The World Wide Web was just invented. And it was all about online branding. No one had ever done it before. And here's the trick. I combined two ordinary things in a new way, because that's my definition of creativity. So I took online, I took branding, I combined it in a new way, and that became the first circle. And then I wrote a book called Brand Child. It was all about how children's relationship with brands are going to change the world as we live in it. And then I wrote a book called Clicks and Mortars about how online and offline combined. And then I wrote about, about the census uh, called Brand Sense. I take the census and I take brands and combine that, and then became the whole term we know today, which is uh, century marketing. And then I took neuroscience and marketing and created a term called neuromarketing which is neuroscience and marketing combined in a new way. And then my, my new book, The Ministry of Common Sense, is I'm doing exactly the same. I take the lack of common sense and put it into a consumer mindset. Over time, all these circles means that I more or less own the concept of being the, the, the number one branding guy in the world. 
not because I were aiming for it uh, day one, but because I built up credibility around that space and over time, I own that space, right? Where a lot of people will go straight in and say, I'm number one. But the problem is you don't have the credibility to do it. And, and most importantly, uh, you have not been on the journey taking everyone else with you to get to that point, which I think is equally important. So as an entrepreneur, I think what's really important is that you ask yourself, what is the one word in the center and how do you go around it by being super focused, laser sharp focused to get to the point in the end of the day, right? Martin, thank you. This has been incredible. I've learned so much and I hope uh, that we can do this again. So tell me this, you've got a golden ticket and you can go back and you can advise your idiot 23-year-old self uh, one bit of advice that you know he would have probably ignored. But what one bit of advice would you give that 23-year-old Martin that would have made your life perhaps slightly easier or advanced faster? It's a very, very simple advice. I'm not sure I would have trusted it if I gave myself that advice when I was young, but it is, don't be concerned. Nine out of 10 of all the problems you have every day are unnecessary. Uh, I think we have a tendency to um, create these clouds of problems and concerns which almost always are irrelevant in the end of the day. And we spend too much negative energy on focusing on that rather than saying, I'm pretty sure it will solve itself over time. And certainly even I, through my life, have had concerns where I've been gambling everything on red. I mean, when I wrote the book Biology, spelled B-U-Y-ology, I put my entire house on the market um, because I was almost going broke because it was a $7 million study, the biggest in the world, scanning people's brains. And no one wanted to support me back then. They thought it was a crazy idea to use neuroscience to understand how we feel. Um, it was first later, it really turned around and people realized probably there is something in that. But at that moment, I gambled everything on red and I was super concerned about will I end up on the street? And I'm not kidding here. Um, so I was literally eating tuna in a can for a year because that's the only money I had, right? Um, and, and I think... What I'm saying here is if I would have met my, my alter ego and I could have said, I've been concerned, nine out of 10 of all concerns are necessary, then it probably would have been a more smooth ride emotionally. Well, uh, worry is interest paid in advance on borrowed trouble. <laughs> exactly. Very, very good quote. Very pointy. <laughs> Excellent. So, Martin, um, what, what are you being influenced by? What are you reading, watching, listening to? that you think other people should pay heed to? I'm going to tell you something which is very, very strange. I've never read a business book in my life. Wow. I do read a lot of newspapers, in paper, by the way, because I want to be in, ta in, in a tactile relationship. But the biggest source of influence for me is the ordinary person out there. And it is that person who has had a wonderful life, but which doesn't have a lot of money. But was just happy in a way. Those people I love, uh, I miss them because I feel that they are defining who real human mankind is. I don't think it's people like me being halfway a philosopher or anyone like me. Um, and I think the issue we have in our life today is that we all aspire up, but why don't you aspire down? 
why don't you aspire to all the people who tend to define what life is all about rather than bragging as I am now and, and showing off and all that stuff. Um, so yeah, the ordinary common person. Very interesting and great advice. So tell me this, what are you struggling with? What are you wrestling with at the moment? I'm struggling with the fact that, and I'm not kidding when I'm telling you this, that until COVID-19 hit the world, I was spending 300 days a year on a plane. And I'm really not kidding. This is true. It was so bad that I literally would, on every third flight, know the cabin crew uh, very well on whatever flight I was going on somewhere (laughs) in the world. And so that was wonderful, but also very stressful. And from one day to another, I went to a wedding in Australia in Sydney and the 9th of March, and they closed the borders and I could not leave the country for, <laughs> for two and a half months. And that was where my world were, were turned upside down as COVID-19 happened. Suddenly my life became all about screen-based communication. And what happened through this process was I had to take my own medicine through many years and understand how do I survive and act in a world uh, of COVID-19. So I did a couple of things which were really fascinating, at least for me. I was swimming in the sea in Sydney Harbour every morning, and uh, I call that the water, water moment, where I'm most creative is when I'm in water. And it's kind of like I can reflect my thoughts in a different way. So I wrote an article every day, and those articles became a mini ebook called The Biology for Coronavirus World. And I published that free of charge to every business in the world to explain what are the consequences of COVID-19. And um, a million people downloaded it. And, and what happened was from one day to another, my business model was changed. Where I had to sit on planes in the past, I certainly had to take into account how do you live in a new world and what business are you doing? That was amazing. So just to put this into perspective, over the last 120 days, I would have been traveling around, let's say, 95 days. And so far, I've been traveling once. Okay, So I have cut down my travel with around 99%. This is probably the future. And I think what has happened for me is instead of me sitting down, feeling sorry for myself, I to realize this is an amazing opportunity. And we've never been more successful in our company but it was because I was embracing chains. Was it hard? You bet it was hard. It was extraordinary hard. It was uncomfortable. It was all the stuff I'm telling my customers to do. And finally, for the first time, I actually felt that sense of uncomfortable moment where I was putting everything on red one more time. And do you know what? That makes you stay alive. Because if you just go down the routine path, you end up with one philosophy I have, which I call the chicken cage syndrome. The chicken cage syndrome is an experiment done with chickens where they're put into a cage and stuck into the cage for half a year. And one day, one day they were let out on the beautiful green grass. The sun was shining, the birds were singing. And guess what? They went out of the chicken cage and straight back into the cage again after only 30 seconds. And that's really what I call the chicken cage syndrome. And the chicken cage syndrome is the fear of the unknown. And a lot of companies are struggling with that very phenomenon. And I did too. So it was wonderful for me to feel for the first time in my life, free and different. I think one of our principal drivers as human beings is to look for what feels familiar. And 
So the chicken's going back into that feeling of security and safety because of its familiarity. And I think what COVID has definitely done has opened our eyes to something that's new and different. And a lot of people are still hoping that we will revert back. My view on this is that we will never go back to the way no, things were. I agree. I think, again, we have to embrace the change. It doesn't mean that we just have to accept it uh, as it is. We can interpret it and adapt it, and we need to adapt as well. But unless we are ready to embrace the change, it will break us. And you're seeing this with a lot of people who are feeling incredibly isolated. And I think from a management perspective, what's really important is the emphasis on humanity. The pastoral side of management, I think, really needs a boost. And um, you know, managers themselves feel isolated. But what, what I've found is the managers who have adapted the best are the ones who have those close human relationships with people, even if it's over Zoom or Teams. But the, the teams that are thriving are the ones that have managers who pay attention to the human side, not just the KPIs and the activity. And uh, we, we have to adapt in that way because we are social primates. We're not going to get, we can't get away from that. And we, we've got to concentrate our energy on uh, helping other human beings. And as businesses, I think we need to understand that too. I, um, I, I agree. And, and let me build on that. I've never been to the graveyard and noticed a thumbstone saying, this man made $2.6 million a year. And he was a single. <laughs> Strangely enough, what quite often is written is an emotional statement. And if there's nothing to say, he when he died or she died. This is the moment for leaders to step up and define their legacy. If they see the world through the employees' eyes rather than their own eyes, they will notice an enormous amount of fear, uncertainty, and anxiety. And those three factors are like cancer. It's incredible poisoning, and it actually can generate cancer. So rather than you doing cost-cutting straight away in fear of where you're going to end up, go the opposite way and ask yourself, um, what can you do to create the best breathing ground for these staff to survive and thrive so they also start to see the world from a different point of view as new opportunities are, are happening? The second thing I want to say is, do me a favor, see this as a game. What's happening right now, as fearful as it is and as close as it is to a lot of people, if you were in a game, let's say we were doing a game challenge, you and I, Sunday afternoon, and I told you the whole world will shut down and you now need to find a way of surviving. I'm pretty sure your eyes and ears would be very clear, your brain would be direct, and you'll think, why don't I do this and that? because you are not emotionally attached to it. It's only a game, right? So play that game with your team and have them disconnect from the emotional attachment they have right now. And as they do that, then listen to those inputs and make that become the foundation for your new company. And listen at all levels, because the out of balance we talked about previously exists even more the further down you go into the hierarchy. Why is that? because they're more in contact with reality quite often, right? And so I think that's super important at the moment. 
leaders, yes, very few leaders have ever gone to school learning to be a leader. So instead of showing that you are a strong leader, instead start to listen. And then listening will actually be, as you said in the opening of your show, the guiding principles for where you should take things because quite often you'll find the answer just by listening. I think we should finish on that note, Martin. Thank you so much. You are welcome. Thank you, Beck. It's been how wonderful. Can, how can people get hold of you? Well, it's, it's super simple. Just go into my website. It's martinlindstrom.com. I'll put on a screenshot here. And yeah, this is my new book, The Ministry of Common Sense. It's going up the 19th of, of January. But if your listeners or viewers are up for it, then uh, if you buy the book already now, then um, there's a, a range of different free webinars I'm actually doing about changing in the COVID-19 period and how you adopt to change and build up your own ministry of common sense. Um, okay. So, yeah, check it out. Also, I'm all on all social channels out there. Martin Lindstrom, thank you. Pleasure. This is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this useful, helpful, insightful, then please like, comment, and share. And do subscribe. And if you'd like to get in touch with me, my email address is marcus at laughs-last.com. And if you think you'd be a good guest, or you know someone who would be, then please get in touch or connect us on LinkedIn. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.